0: Hello, and welcome to Cultural Conversations with the International Hub. We are committed to helping you navigate global business. Throughout this series, we will have conversations with global business professionals and experts.
1: Hey, everyone, this is Amanda Bonnie, and I'm here with Edward King. Edward, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you've lived, where you went to school, and where you work now?
0: Uh, sure. I grew up in Idaho. Um but, my family liked to travel a lot, and by the time I was sixteen, I had seen most of the u s and parts of Mexico and canada um and It really kind of opened my eyes to the larger world out there and all the cultural differences that existed. Uh, I completed an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering from b y u and then completed a master's in business with an e- emphasis in program management from Golden Gate University, and I've lived and worked in Silicon Valley since 1988.
1: Okay, can you now give us a brief timeline of your career?
0: Sure. Uh, In the 1980s, I worked as a a software engineer for several companies, and then in the 1990s, I worked as a hardware engineer and a program manager for um, several different companies, uh, a couple of them were asian companies then in the 2000s i did uh, product development um hardware product development and ran some product development um and program management groups uh for asian companies and then in 2010s i've done um startups and kind of some new ventures Uh, Nurturing startups, helping them get their products designed and into production and into market.
1: So you mentioned working for Asian companies. Were you located in Asia or were you based in the United States and traveling?
0: Yeah, so I've uh, traveled in Asia and uh, lived there on and off since 1995. Um. I didn't live there for any large stretches. It would be, you know, weeks or months, and then back to the U.S. and then uh, back to Asia for more work. The company, the countries I spent time in in Asia, um, working and living on and off: South Korea, Hong Kong, Japan, Malaysia, Taiwan, and China.
1: Wow, so that's a handful of different countries. Um, Did you do any sort of cultural preparation before visiting those countries or being immersed in them?
0: No, you know, um, I didn't have any formal preparation for it. Um, Like I said, as a a kid, uh, my family traveled a lot and let me see different cultures in North America. And, uh, you know, I did serve uh, an LDS mission in Australia. and so it gave me an opportunity to be immersed in a, a culture that was not the U.S. culture, but it wasn't an Asian culture either. So a lot of my preparation for working and living in an Asian culture was just a, a learned thing, kind of learned as you go. Um, I think the, the best advice someone gave me before I actually started working in Asia was, I um, be very observant to everything that goes on and find someone in that culture that can help you understand and is uh, happy explaining to you what's going on and ask a lot of questions uh, about what's going on. Um, and you know, it's funny that I think the second best advice somebody gave me in dealing with with Asian culture is always wait until someone offers you a chair before you sit because the the seating arrangements in an Asian culture in a formal setting um uh, the rules of, of cu- the culture are are very strict and precise
1: That does seem like useful advice. Um along other lines would you say that you ever experienced culture
0: shock? You know, I I wouldn't say that it was shock um but I've had e- experiences traveling and working that were sometimes uncomfortable. I think the most uncomfortable, um, experiences I've had in Asia actually come in taxi cabs. Um, are so much different than taxi cabs, uh, in the United States. Um, and, and sometimes you kind of feel like you're taking your hands, your life in your own hands, riding in a, riding in a taxi in Asia. Um, and, you know, you, you have to, I have to trust somebody to take me where, where they think they heard I want to go and to take me there safely. So a, a lot of the, the cultural shock isn't really shock. It's just, you know, those experiences that you may feel uncomfortable about uh, knowing what the outcome is going to be.
1: So I guess the takeaway for our listeners is be prepared for uncomfortable situations. That makes sense. Um, in the reverse, what, did you ever experience reverse culture shock or change in your perspective when you came home?
0: Yeah, you know, um, I think my perspective has always changed after I have uh, lived in some place different, worked in some place different, and then returned to the U.S. Um, you know, I was always told when I was young that hey. The U.S. is the uh, greatest country on earth to live in. Uh, But my first lengthy experience abroad was when when I lived in Australia. Um, And I came to the conclusion that um, there are great people everywhere, uh, just not in the U.S. And it's it's more about people and dealing with people and some of the differences um, in the cultures between the countries that... Um, kind of changed my perspective about how I view the United States.
1: Okay, so now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and I want to learn about communication. Was there ever a time of miscommunication between you and someone of the other culture because of your different styles of communication? And did this lead to any confrontation?
0: Yeah, you know, Western culture... Uh, Especially business culture in the U.S., um, we tend to communicate very directly and openly and come to the point. But many Asian cultures tend to communicate um, in a lot of indirect ways rather than direct ways. It never really led to conflict because the Asian cultures also have an instinct to avoid confrontation. So even though my style when I first started working and living in Asia was kind of this direct, open style, um the my Asian hosts would never um try to offend me by telling me, Hey, uh don't be so direct or we don't we feel uncomfortable when you're so direct with us. And so uh it didn't lead to conflicts, open conflicts but you could tell that, that at times there was some uneasiness because of the direct versus indirect communications uh and perhaps one of the biggest things to understand is that um many times when you were you were talking discussing something um you would get a response back that they that uh, your counterpart would say yes you know you'd ask for something You'd ask them to do something, and they would say yes. Well, it took a while to figure out that yes meant, yes, I heard what you were saying, not yes, I agree with you, and, you know, I will do what we were discussing. So a lot of times at the very beginning, it it would lead to miscommunication. Um, You know, I would ask them to do something, they would say yes, and then it would be a couple days later, you would come back, and it wouldn't wasn't done, and you'd have to have the conversation about you know well why didn't why didn't you do it? I thought you agreed to do it, and then it would be, "Well, yeah, we had the conversation and and yes, we heard what you said, but we're still studying whether we want to do it or not.
1: Did you have to change your style of communication when working with them?
0: Oh, definitely, so i uh, you I got to understand that, yes in an agreement. Uh, d- it didn't necessarily mean, yes, I will do it. And so uh, I had to l- learn to look at body uh, cues. Uh, if they felt comfortable with what we were discussing and the yes meant, yes, I, I feel comfortable. I hear what you're saying and we're going to do it. Or you had to look at the body cues to figure out that they're just being polite and they're just saying, you know, yes, I heard you. So it uh, it meant that in the uh, communication process, I had to be more attentive, not just to the words, but to the context of the discussion and to the body language.
1: Okay, was there a kind of body language that tipped you off to their meaning, yes, I want to do this, or no, I don't?
0: Um, yeah, the the folding of arms, you could always tell it was, yes, I heard you. Or if, if they didn't close up their body by folding arms, um, you, you could feel that, yeah, we're having a great conversation and it's, an, it's a, a conversation they're comfortable with and that they're in agreement with what we're talking about. And you know also, um, you could always tell by lean forward or lean back. If uh, you're in a conversation that's really engaging and and we're working together, and things are going to happen, um, it was always kind of lean forward. But if if it was a conversation that was going to be, uh, yes, I understand what you're saying, and I'll take it in an advisement, there was more of a kind of lean back attitude about it.
1: Okay, so you've mentioned a few different mannerisms that are different between cultures, like uh, this saying yes, but not meaning yes, and... Different seating arrangements are there any other mannerisms that are really different that we should be aware about?
0: There's a lot. How you present business cards is a big deal. you, you know you don't you just don't hand them a business card. There's like a little ceremony that goes on around it uh, how it's the card is presented um, and so most Asian cultures they also bow a little bit and it depends on the country you're in Japan has a very formal way of bowing depending on the status in society you are whereas like the chinese it's just a, maybe a little bob of the head to acknowledge the the other person and to give them some respect um no handshakes hardly any handshakes go on uh in my business dealings in in asia um and there's a a lot of communication Um, and culture around eating and etiquette that's different in the East than in the West, Uh, especially because you're expected to use chopsticks. And there's a whole etiquette and culture around how you grip your chopsticks, how you put them on the table, how they're placed in food bowls, you know, uh, not sharing of chopsticks, this kind of thing that you kind of have to learn Um, because if, if you don't learn it, uh, a lot of times in a new situation, uh, people think you're uneducated and uncultured and it, um, creates some difficulty in the relationship.
1: Okay. Um, one last question dealing with communication. How was negative feedback given in Asian cultures and was this similar to what you were expecting coming from the United States?
0: Uh, no, actually, it's totally opposite. Uh, negative feedback is seldom given in public and in meetings, and especially in front of peers. Um, and in private, the the negative feedback is often given, not in a direct way, but in an indirect way with uh, like a story um, that highlights how how we should be um, communicating and uh, the feedback would come in, in the way of like a little story that, that they would tell about it. So um, oftentimes you would think, well, why are they telling me this story? Well, it's really because it's an indirect way of them trying to give you uh, feedback.
1: So that's really interesting because Erin Meyer in her book, The Culture Map, says that Asian cultures often give feedback in an indirect way. Um, And so that's good to know that they do it with stories. Okay, our next question is, how did the behavior and uh, values of the other culture affect your interactions with them?
0: You know, I think that beliefs and values um, of others always affect our interactions. And a lot of times, it's uh, it's not just cultural; it's it's a a personal a personal belief. Um, You know, it's hard to point to just one or two values or or beliefs that that affected uh, interactions and that uh, affected how I functioned in Asia. But one that affects a lot of interactions is the concept of face or of, of saving face. And it's, a, it's the, a belief or a value in Asia which um, makes certain that all parties in a, in a confrontation or in a meeting or in a discussion can maintain their, their social image and their self-image and making sure that there's really no public humiliation of a, of a person. So I think this belief and value in um, the, uh, a good self-image in public and a good social image taints a lot of the, of the behaviors that you see openly in, between individuals in Asia.
1: All right. Another question related to their behavior. How do they handle ambiguity? Are they comfortable with not knowing outcomes or do they need to know all the details before making a decision?
0: You know, it was my experience that uh, ambiguity um, is not driven as much by culture as it is from uh, it's a individual to individual, and it's an individual thing. However, in Asian cultures, um, a lot of the ones that I've dealt with and a lot of the people I've dealt with, um, they try to conform to what they consider a norm. And they feel most comfortable when things don't deviate from that norm. So they are more comfortable um, with, with the known and uncomfortable with, with things that are ambiguous.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you picked up on that. Um, Even though it's an individual preference, I guess, um... Asian cultures do tend to rank higher on Hofstede's uncertainty avoidance scale, meaning that they are probably more uh, adverse to ambiguity than us in the United States. Again, related to their behavior, are Asian cultures generally more focused on building relationships with you before work gets done, or are they more interested in getting a task done?
0: So, um... The uh, Chinese have a concept that they call Guangxi, and it really describes uh, the basic dynamics of um, personal relationships and individuals, and and those relationships that are cultivated with other individuals. And this is really the central idea in Chinese society. So it's more uh, getting to know people and focused on people and the relationship rather than completing a task, rather than signing a deal, rather than shipping something, a lot of times it's the it's the relationship and the the network of relationships that are built within the culture is the basis for um power within a culture. For example, um in business Uh, One member of a business may perform a favor for a member of another business because they have an interpersonal relationship, whether that's from school or from previous uh, work relationships or some kind of family tie. Um, And it helps to facilitate the relationship between the two businesses involved in the interaction. So it's mostly about that relationship, not what one business needs from the other business and many times to get tasks done the only way to get them done in a like a timely manner and uh, for like good cost cost and quality is to rely on this uh, interpersonal relationship this Guangxi that's been built over many years so they focus way more on people and inter the interpersonal relationships than they do tasks. And in fact, sometimes they will actually pay more for something or wait longer for something because of the relationship between the two individuals and the trust that they've built up over the years. And they look at it in the long term, just not one isolated meeting or deal, but as a lifetime of dealing with each other.
1: Okay, would you say that the United States is like the opposite of that mentality?
0: The United States is totally the opposite of that. So, for people in the US who who want to do business in Asia, we're always focused on let's get the deal done, the cost structure of the deal being the best, um that or the delivery the fastest, and it's very difficult um, when you first start dealing with an Asian culture to realize that that it's different, it's all about the relationship in Asia. So you have to spend more time developing that relationship um, rather than trying to get a win or trying to get, get something quickly at a cheap cost and move on.
1: So Asian cultures are definitely more relationship-based than the United States in their business uh, relationships. I wonder if this is due to their more long-term focus. Um I guess that's something we can look into later. On another note, are Asian cultures on time with meetings and deadlines?
0: Yeah, you know, for the most part, yes. Um if once a commitment is made, uh, uh and because of this relationship that that of of trust and honor that um on time and deadlines and all of that are usually met because it's tied up in this relationship and this, this honor thing.
1: Okay, what was their approach to management and leadership, both when acting as a leader and a follower?
0: You know, um, for managing and leading in Asia, the, the process is as important, if not more important, than the, than the outcome. And the process takes time. And you need to understand that it sometimes does take time, so don't get frustrated. Asian decisions simply you know, are not rushed. They like to chew over you know, even the smallest issue um, you know, from all possible angles and look at all possible angles. And sometimes they allow for a lot of inputs from members of their, of their group. And mainly this is to uh, diffuse risk in the decision-making process, to try to come to this consensus that everybody kind of buys into what's going on and all take the risk together. Um, and so it, it's important to understand that in leadership management, the people who you lead or you you manage, this is the accepted process. And as somebody who's being led or managed, they like to feel that they do have some input um, and that they are listened to and in, in the whole discussion.
1: So their decision-making is more consensual, like they want to make sure everyone's on board?
0: Yeah, you know, it's, it's very funny. They, uh, uh, a lot of the, of the Asian businesses and, and teams that I've led and deal with they they do like to talk and 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 they do like to discuss and try to come to some kind of consensus but in the at the very end of the day it's really a top down driven society and even though the manager leader they're expected to participate in this um process there are many times when the group would come to a consensus but the leader or manager would choose to disregard that consensus and do something different. Um, and, and then as a follower, you're expected to uh, fall in line behind that top-down, even though it may not follow the consensus or the discussion that's gone on for, for months sometimes. So it's kind of a dichotomy that you need to get used to, that even though the group may come to a consensus, It's usually the leader or manager that will say, this is what we're going to do, and everyone's expected to follow.
1: So it's kind of a mix between consensual and top-down decision-making. Like, ultimately, the decision is top-down, but they do value the input of everyone else. On another note, what effect does the regulatory environment have on doing business in Asian countries?
0: so in the west we're we're very used to uh especially when it comes to money and finance uh very open and transparent and in a lot of Asian society that's not true and a a lot of um a lot of things are kind of done under the table, and that's the norm, and everybody's used to it um there may be regulations or a regulatory environment in place. And a lot of that's driven by the need to be part of the the world trade community. but in practice, this whole regulatory environment uh for the most part gets ignored, and a lot of things are done you know on the relationship side or under the table kinds of things um, and so it's sometimes very difficult to, to business. Uh, In an Asian culture, unless you realize that there are things going on behind the scenes and under the table that may not be what we in the West would consider um, legal or ethical, but in an Asian culture, it's, it's really acceptable.
1: Did current events between America and the Asian countries you worked with have an effect on you doing business in Asia?
0: Yeah, you know, it it never really did. Um because most of the of the business or the um or the dealings that I had were with ind- individuals themselves, and it seems that individuals seem to be the same all over the world uh, no matter no matter where you go. I think the thing that um the the current events that really affect day-to-day are the ones that come in the form of taxation, um, import taxation, tariffs, um, some regulatory, especially in the electronics industry around, um, uh, electronic radiation emissions from devices. And so a lot of that does influence how we deal with each other be, because it, it comes down to a, uh, a forced dollar and cents, or the ability or inability to import or export something.
1: So, Edward, we know you are involved with electronic manufacturing, um, and our next question deals with accounting. And you've already mentioned that the United States is generally more transparent in information they hand out. Um, but kind of related to accounting, is are Asian countries more open and transparent with what they disclose or are they very cautious
0: yeah no very very opaque very cautious um especially uh when it comes to openly showing uh financial records or accounting or money it was uh it's almost like an onion and you could just keep peeling away at it um, of the accounting and you'll never really get to the core or the bottom of it. Um uh, we we sometimes say they for accounting and finance they'll circle the wagons and you'll never get into the interior and you'll never really understand uh the financials and the accounting of a, of an Asian company.
1: Did that make it hard to work with them or did it never really play a role?
0: Um you know it's it's funny uh, I've worked for Asian companies and I've I've had to deal with Asian companies. And when I dealt with Asian companies, it did make it difficult. But when I'm in an Asian company, because I'm in the company, I'm kind of inside that, that circle, that wagon circle. And so it's not difficult for me to deal with, but it's a, many times difficult for my customers to deal with. So I've seen both sides of it, so I understand both sides of it. So you know, I know some of the things that goes on, so I know I just expect it is always there.
1: So our last question for you, is there any other advice that you would like to give any business person wanting to do business in Asian cultures?
0: Yeah, sure. I I have uh I have quite a list. Um do you have time for me to go through a list?
1: Yeah, that would be great.
0: I think the best advice I, I can give is probably good advice not for just uh, living and working in an Asian culture, but living and working in any culture that's new. And it's uh, it's observe and find someone you can trust to explain. And I think the other thing that, that advice I would give would be know before you go. That is do your homework about kind of the history and the culture of the place you're going and be able to share some of that with, with the people that you go to do business with or visit. Um, as you share things you know about their culture and their history and their literature, it builds bridges between the two cultures and it allows you to open up to each other and to, to share at, at a very personal level. And to gain kind of that trust that you need to communicate and live and to work in a, in a new culture, I think uh one of the other things is don't be afraid to explore um, many times if I was uh somewhere and I had a Saturday free, um I would always try to find a a colleague, a local colleague um to go with me to do something, whether it's you know just shopping or going to an art museum um taking a, a a trip somewhere to see the ocean try to find ways to explore and to understand and to find things out about that culture that you may never know just in reading or talking to a person um and i think in asia you should understand kind of the qu- concepts of saving face and Quangxi. um i think before you start doing business or living in Asia, you should understand these two things because they color a lot of, of Asian culture. Um, I, you know, one thing I thought about, um, when I, when I managed a a team of developers in, in Shanghai, a a lot of times they would be, um, new college graduates or they this is their first experience dealing with, with a Western culture. And one of the things that was really fun to do that was help them choose uh an English name. It was always fun to to hear some of the names that they would they would uh want to name themselves, um, and to discuss that with them and to discuss with them, hey, this is what it means in English, or this are some of the implications. Um, I, I had one person who worked for me and he wanted his English name to be Fatty. And, and I had to explain to him, oh, you don't want to call yourself Fatty, you know? And and then there's the flip side of that. Um, especially in China, I found that if you ask them, hey, I'm looking for a Chinese name for myself, they're very, they become very open to doing the flip side and discussing, oh, this is your English name. This name can sound kind of like your English name, but this is the meaning around it. And these are the characters in your name and this is the meaning. So it's it's good to kind of open up with this kind of personal relationship. And then um, the other, I think the last thing is um, most of the Asian cultures that, that I've lived in or, de- or dealt with, the idea of of dining and food and going out to dinner and maybe spending three or four hours over just a simple meal and allowing them to pay for that meal is something that goes goes a long way in building bridges for, for in culture with, with Asian cultures.
1: Okay, that was all the questions we have for you today. Um, thanks for joining us and giving us some advice and tips on working with Asian cultures. We'll talk to
0: you another time. All right. Thanks.
1: Thanks for listening. Join us next episode as we hear from an American in Australia.
0: For more information about global business and culture, visit www.internationalhub.org and be sure to subscribe to Cultural Conversations with International Hub. Thanks for listening and join us next time.